0: I'll hear argument first this morning in 5 Smith v. Texas. Mr. Steicher.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case is here for the second time. In your summary reversal, this Court held that petitioners mitigating evidence could not be given adequate consideration through the Texas special issues or the nullification instruction. On remand, the CCA found the error harmless by concluding the opposite, that petitioner's jury could give sufficient consideration to his mitigating evidence, including specifically the evidence of his 78 IQ, learning disabilities, and troubled
2: background. found it could, or did they find that that it did? I mean, I, I thought our holding was that, given the instructions, the jury would not necessarily take into account those mitigating factors. And I thought that what the Texas Court held is, yes, that was a possibility, and we have to see whether that possibility came to pass, which is what harmless error analysis involves. I think Justice Scalia what So they're, they're not contradicting the fact that the jury wasn't required to take it into account, but they're saying, nonetheless, in our view, the jury did take it into account, and therefore the error was harmless. That doesn't contradict our opinion.
1: The, the I mean, you might want
2: to argue against it on the merits, but but I don't see how it contradicts our
1: opinion. I think it does contradict your opinion, Justice Scalia. Your opinion said mm. that petitioners mitigating evidence had little or nothing to do with the inquiries of the special issues. And your opinion also said that the nullification instruction, no matter how clearly conveyed or fully understood by the jury, would not solve that problem.
2: That's right. And that means that the jury was not instructed to take it into account, and I think the Texas Court is conceding that. But it's, it's saying, nonetheless, we don't think that the error made any difference because, in our view, the jury did take it into account.
1: The, the manner in which the CCA posited that the jury could take it into account was the fact that on voir the jurors said, we can follow a nullification instruction and falsify our answers to the special issues in order to give effect to mitigating evidence. That was the exact same proposition that the CCA had issued in its first opinion that this Court summarily reversed.
2: Yes, but it seems to me it's one thing to use it for the purpose of saying the instruction was okay, and it's something else to use it for the purpose of saying, even though the instruction didn't require that, it was a fuzzy instruction and a juror could very reasonably have understood it not to allow nullification. Nonetheless, we've satisfied ourselves that the jury indeed thought it had the nullification power. I I, I don't see how it contradicts our opinion.
1: I think what's contradictory, Your Honor, is that the notion that the nullification instruction would be an adequate vehicle with what this court specifically rejected,
2: they didn't say it was an adequate, adequate vehicle. I mean, they, they acknowledge that that instruction shouldn't be given again because it, it doesn't require the jury to do what what you say the jury must do. And I, I think they accept that. But they say, nonetheless, though it was fuzzy and didn't require it, we think the jury did indeed think it had the power to do
1: And I would also add that when you actually look at the voir dire, on which the CCA relied, in which it said jurors expressed no discomfort, no hesitation about their willingness to falsify their answers to the special issues. The very first juror in this case, a lawyer, expressed exactly the kinds of discomfort that this Court feared and anticipated. With the use of the nullification structure
3: well mr mr may i interrupt you or interrupt the course of your argument to get to a more preliminary point before you get down to details do you concede that harmless error analysis is ever appropriate is ever open as an option uh following uh in, in effect a finding of of uh of this kind of instructional error
1: Henry one instructional error You concede that? Justice Studer, we do not concede that, but nor do we rely on that as a basis for relief in this case. We believe that the purported harmless error analysis that the CCA applied was so interwoven with a rejection of the Federal Constitutional
3: Oh, I I quite agree. I I understand that. Uh, Was the the issue of the availability of harmless error uh, raised on your side of the case uh, in
1: the proceedings back in Texas? Yes, it was. It was raised on remand from this Court. Well,
4: also on the same preliminary uh, <clears throat> line of inquiry, is are we in as good a position as the State Court to conduct harmless error analysis, or can we or must we defer to the State Court's HARMLESS error analysis.
1: I would say ordinarily this Court is not in as good a position as a State Court to conduct harmless error analysis. Our belief here is that the, the basis for the State finding the error harmless was a very unusual rejection of the conclusion that this, these instructions would facilitate consideration of mitigating evidence.
0: You you, you, you agree th- that the application of the harmless error analysis is a question of State law, though, correct?
1: I, I do not agree with that. I think that the application of harmless error analysis, when it's predicated on a misunderstanding of Federal constitutional law, is not an independent basis for decision. It's clearly wrapped up in the Federal claim, and I think this Court's cases have clearly so held.
4: So that if there is an instruction given to the jury and it violates the Constitution, then we, as a de novo matter, uh, can determine the harmless error a harmless error inquiry?
1: It's certainly possible. I don't think that that's a usual practice, and I wouldn't advocate that here. And this is not a usual case in which the state has conducted an ordinary harmless error analysis. The state has actually in no way disparaged the power and extent of petitioners mitigating evidence.
4: Well, is the level of harmless error uh, determined as a matter of federal or state law when there's a
1: federal right? Generally speaking, it's a matter of state law with some limitation. We really?
4: You mean this, 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 the state could have something that uh, has to be harmless beyond a reasonable doubt, and we'd be bound by that?
1: Well, on, on direct review, Chapman clearly says it's a federal question what the standard of review may be. And on direct review, it's undoubted that uh, harmless beyond a reasonable doubt standard is required by Chapman. This case doesn't present the issue of whether on state post-conviction, A state can have the latitude of requiring greater harm because, on the CCA's own analysis, the standard of harm that's applied on state habeas is identical to the standard of harm that's applied on direct review, the standard of Almanza, which posits Chapman error, harmless beyond a reasonable doubt, for preserved error, and egregious harm for unpreserved error. And and, and this
2: this was unpreserved error. I mean, they're not saying this for everything. They're saying he did not object to the instruction <coughs> at the time, and therefore our ham- harmless error standard is, uh, is more rigorous than it would otherwise be.
1: And, What's we, unreasonable about that? We argue that there are three independent bases, federal bases, for finding the, the application of egregious harm in, the, in this case to be uh, uh, violative of federal rights. And I'd like to turn to the first of those arguments, Petitioner plainly objected that the special issues and verdict form did not allow for consideration of his mitigating evidence. That was and remains his core argument throughout this case. Yeah, but that's a
2: very generalized argument, and what he won on was a very specific point, that that this instruction, in effect, required, if they were going to give mitigating effect, required jury nullification. That's a very specific point. And he, he, did not object. he did not object to that specific problem. Had he objected, the court might have said, you know, there, there's, there's something to what you say and I'll give a different instruction, but he didn't.
1: Everyone at trial understood that the special issues on the verdict form were unalterable, that Texas law required the legislature to specify what was on the special verdict form. What the trial court invited counsel to do was to alter a different form of nullification in the supplemental instruction that would then interpret the special issues. This Court's opinion in its summary reversal made plain that the problem with nullification instructions is broad and intractable and applies to all nullification instructions.
5: What you're going to hear in a second, I'm sure, because I read it in the briefs, my understanding of the Texas point is slightly different. It is this, that under Texas law, when you file before the, before the uh, uh, trial, a general objection, unless you make the objection again when the specific, when a specific instruction is given, you forfeited your rights to appeal under Texas law. And they say that's true of evidence, and uh, that's true here, too. And they say that's just Texas law, ordinary Texas law. Now,
1: there's nothing. that's to- what you did.
5: You didn't make the right objection. Now, you come up here, and you're out. You can't make any argument, but- we're very generous, and we will let even people who make every wrong procedural thing still have a shot if what, they've do- if what they're pointing to is absolutely egregious. But yours isn't absolutely egregious, so you're in the same boat as if you just didn't have any argument because you didn't follow the Texas law. Now, I take it that's their point. What's your response?
1: I have several responses, Your Honor. First of all, there were the, the objection to the special verdict form and the special issues was made plain in pretrial motions. And that objection was clearly recognized by the trial judge at trial and denied at trial when the instructions were being considered for the purposes of war deal.
5: Yeah, they're the Texas court. We're not. We're following Texas law, they say, and you're wrong. The Court uh, uh, court of uh,
1: Criminal Appeals did not invoke this basis for saying that his trial objection was inadequate. They didn't say that it was made at the wrong time or in the wrong what they specifically they, they said.
0: Applied, they applied a legal standard, the egregious harm standard, that depends upon the failure of an objection. So I would have thought they certainly thought that there was an inadequate objection or they wouldn't have applied that standard. No,
1: Yes, Your Honor, I, 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 I misspoke if I, if I conveyed the impression that they did not suggest that it was inadequate objection. I was merely suggesting that it wasn't inadequate in the sense that it was made at the wrong time pre-trial or at-trial.
6: The judge, the judge, I thought, told the lawyers what the charge would be, and I think also said, I can't give a separate charge on mitigation because that's a job that only the Texas legislature can do. I am bound by the statute to give these two things. I think the judge said that, so it was the understanding of everyone.
1: It was the understanding of everyone. It's reflected in the record in the first state habeas opinion that the Court of Criminal Appeals acknowledges that the verdict form was sacrosanct. That was not going to be altered. So the the nature of the CCA's suggested failing of petitioner was that he did not specifically object to the nullification instruction.
5: It sounds like you're arguing that the Texas Court misapplied Texas
7: law, and you want us to reverse their application of their own law about what is an adequate objection.
1: No, Your Honor. I believe that the, the CCA misunderstood the Federal law of the relationship between Penry I and Penry II. The failing in this case was a verdict form that made no mention of mitigating evidence. The nullification instruction was the State's flawed defense to that failing. But on the
7: issue of whether there was an adequate, and I thought you were arguing that in fact there was uh, an adequate objection. And if the, if the, the State Court held against you on that point, that's an issue of Texas law, isn't it?
1: I don't think it is an issue of Texas law, Your Honor, because the basis for the finding that it was inadequate was that he had to separately object to the nullification instruction as opposed to what everyone agreed he object to was the inadequacy of the verdict form. That was his Federal claim. And our view is that the misunderstanding of the nature of the Federal claim was le- what led the Texas Court to conclude that his objection was inadequate. I'd also like to- May
3: may, may I again interrupt you to to just get the context of your argument? You said earlier that under Chapman, uh, assuming there is a harmless error issue, that essentially is is necessarily a federal issue. And therefore, I take it the the basis of your point here is if that is a federal issue, then the adequacy of, of actions of counsel to raise it is also a federal issue. Is, I think, is that correct? If that is I understand correct. you. That is correct, okay. Your
1: Honor. Um, I would like to make it Do we clear.
2: make up our own procedural rules, too? I mean, why? why? Why is it just a federal judgment as to whether it adequately complied with the Texas rule? Presumably, we, we, we should make up our own rule.
1: I don't think you need to make it. Why not? Clear. You say it's a federal question. It's a federal question about what the nature of the claim is. And if the state's misunderstanding of the federal claim was what was inter- was intertwined with its conclusion that it was an inadequate objection. That is a misunderstanding of federal law. We also believe that the procedural the, the well, that's, that, that's
2: a little bit different from from your response to uh, Justice Souter. You're making a much narrower argument. You you, you don't. I
1: believe I I, I believe. Our you don't assert
2: that in every case when there's a procedural uh, objection. Um, uh, in a capital case or any case involving federal law, federal law will determine whether the procedural objection is added.
1: I agree with that fully, Your
3: Honor. But you do, but you do take that position with respect to a harmless error?
1: I think that the question of whether an error can be deemed harmless is always a federal question. Chapman says as much.
3: All right. If, if we assume for the sake of argument uh, that, that there, there is disagreement on that point, are there any cases of this Court on the, on the matter of uh, uh, adequacy of, of state procedural bars uh, that would support you even on the assumption that it's a state, not a federal issue?
1: Well, clearly, Ake versus Oklahoma holds that if the state invocation of the procedural rule is dependent on a judgment about federal law, and that judgment is incorrect, it is not an independent basis for decision under the independent adequacy
3: ground what, what about the case the name of which i cannot think of uh, to the effect that uh, uh, re- requiring uh, procedural action by the defendant which would uh simply be a useless formality and so on
1: that's flowers it's and, all
3: right uh it wouldn't wouldn't that be authority that you would invoke in in the, in the sense as i understood your earlier argument uh, that the, that the, the, the pretrial motion and the adjudication of that made it plain to everybody what the, what the issue was, uh, and therefore requiring anything more would,
1: would in effect, violate the Flowers rule. I agree with that, Justice Souter. I think that, that to apply the default in these circumstances, where everyone was plainly aware of his concerns about the inadequacy of the verdict form and, special, and the special issues, would be imposing too high and too excessively burdensome a requirement okay. for the preservation of the Federal right. Okay. I do also want to argue that there is a why sp- is there. That,
0: why, just, why is that too burdensome? And what's so burdensome about saying I object to that instruction?
1: Well, he did.
0: You're no, saying it's, there's a difference in saying it would have been futile and saying it's high and burdensome, and I'm just wondering what your specific point is.
1: Our specific point is, once he's made it plain, and this is all that Texas law itself says is required, once he's made it plain, That he objects to a special verdict form which cannot allow for the consideration of making evidence and this court's holding is that that is precisely the error in this case that no supplemental nullification instruction could correct he's plainly made clear what his objection was and there was nothing else he could do
8: May may i ask this question about your position is it your position that they should not have applied any harmless error review or that they applied the wrong standard and if it's the latter what was the standard they should have applied
1: we believe it is the latter that that we are assuming that harmless error analysis could apply here without conceding that it necessarily applies, but assuming for the purposes of this case that it does apply, it should have applied the Chapman standard, which is their standard. For but it would have been error. the
8: Chapman standard if it, was, if it was federal collateral review, would it?
1: No, it would be under Brecht. It would be a different standard. But Texas law for jury instruction claims clearly states that for preserved error, the standard is Chapman. It's
3: preserved error on direct review, isn't it? On page 23 of their brief, there's a footnote that uh, the the red brief that that at least claims to describe the, the sort of the structure of Texas law. And I thought under Texas law, you got a Chapman analysis only if you were on direct review and had preserved error. Is that correct?
1: I think that the CCA's position and respondents' position is that Almanza applies duly on direct review and post-conviction and that that's their explanation for why the State Court didn't impose a procedural default on State habeas. And one of our views is even if you don't agree that under Federal law this objection was inadequate, we believe that the State could not in effect change its mind about the adequacy of his trial objection only after this Court Summarily reversed its ruling on the merits. And we think there are. Well, well
0: but it didn't have to reach the harmless error question uh, after it made an erroneous determination that there was no error at all. When the case came up here and the court determined there was error, then it was necessary to reach it. I don't see that it's changing its position at all.
1: I think it is changing its position. When four judges signal that this may be a procedural impediment in the case and the court declines to embrace it, I think that is a signal to this Court. Wouldn't
0: it be a normal exercise of judicial restraint to say we don't have to reach out and decide whether this error was harmless if we've already decided there's no error at all?
1: I think it would not be in the case of state habeas for this reason. The vast overwhelming number of cases that proceed into state habeas are on their way, when they're final, into federal habeas. And the State Court was abandoning this argument for federal habeas. That is, it was removing any procedural impediment. Well, I just
2: just don't, you you, you say whenever whenever a Court decides the case on the merits instead of using uh, an intervening procedural objection, the procedural objection is waived.
1: No, I do not make that. I do not make that broad argument, Your Honor. I think in the special circumstances of State habeas, Whereas this Court knows 99 percent of cases are on their way to federal habeas, and the State does not adopt this procedural impediment, which would, from a judicial especially
2: in capital cases, courts don't like to to say, oh, you know, oh, you know, yes, you may be innocent, but (laughs) there's this procedural objection. I
1: I think most courts I'm afraid that's not my experience with the Court of Criminal Appeals. it's my experience with
2: a lot of courts And it's a very
0: bad, uh, I I think in the long term, in the broad category of cases, it would be a very bad solution uh, for defendants, because what's going to happen, once a court's determined there's no error at all, it's much easier for them to say, oh, and by the way, if there was, it's harmless. And if they did that, and then it turns out there was an error, you're going to be back here saying, well, don't be bound by their harmless error decision, because they thought there was no error at all, so they didn't focus on it carefully. I would say the way they approached it in this case is the more desirable way. If you don't think there's an error, don't go on and decide whether it's harmless or not in the abstract.
1: In the vast majority of cases, Chief Justice Roberts, the courts in Texas take that approach, which is if there is a procedural impediment to the case, they flag that procedural impediment, rule on alternative grounds. And I think that is good evidence that in this case, when four justices urge a procedural
5: Wait, wait why, why, why do you say There are a lot of cases where it doesn't matter. I I would have thought every case it matters. I thought, isn't it an absolute rule that there's a federal issue in a case and there's a state ground? The state ground typically is a failure to raise an objection. And a state court says the federal ground is what we're talking about. They say nothing about the state ground, and they decide the federal ground. The defendant goes to a federal court. And he says, I'm entitled to be released because they got the federal ground wrong. I thought it's 100% the case, and this is where you'll correct me, that it's now too late for the state to raise the state ground, that the states waived their adequate and independent state ground, and that if they try to raise it again, the answer is always, not some of the time, I'm very sorry, state, you're out of luck. You should have decided it on the state ground and not reached the federal ground.
1: I think that's exactly right, Justice. Why wouldn't that be the I think, case? Suppose the uh, uh, uh,
5: I'm
8: sorry. Yeah.
1: I mean, suppose isn't, the d- state.
8: Isn't there a difference between waving it as a procedural bar and waving it as a, an objection to the proper standard of uh,
2: review?
1: We don't think it's a difference, Your Honor, because we think the underlying fact, the adequacy of the trial objection, was what obtained. And I'd like to point out. Who
2: gives the, the State Court the power to, as you say, waive that objection? I can understand when you say the, well, the prosecutor didn't object. It's the prosecutor that, that has the power to, to forfeit certain arguments on behalf of the people which, which he chooses not to raise. I
1: think "waiver" might not be the right word, Well it's well, clear well, that if the State Court does not rely on a procedural impediment, when the case goes into federal habeas, that impediment cannot be reintroduced in the case as a separate bro- ground of decision. Well, even if it
0: is it, it logically an- anterior to consideration of that procedural impediment is a particular ruling on the merits, and the State Court didn't make that merits. They thought there was no error. It is logically not necessary for them to decide whether an error is harmless if they don't think there's an error, and to say that they waive that, that later ground, I would have thought, would be very surprising. Why do we remand these cases for further proceedings, not inconsistent with our opinion, if there's nothing further to be considered?
1: I think that the concerns for judicial economy in this case would have dictated that if the State Court believed that the trial objection was inadequate, it would have rested its decision on that ground to essentially preclude merits review of that Federal constitutional issue.
6: Otherwise, the you have a Supreme Court decision that the State Court can say, thanks, thanks, that's very interesting advice, but we, there was a procedural default here. And although we bypassed it the first time, we're not going to bypass it after the Supreme Court has told us what the federal law is.
1: I think it's a special risk in state habeas. Well, it would be a
3: special risk if you, if, 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 if you, if you allowed them to raise the bar, allowed a state to raise a bar uh, uh, to consideration of the issue. But I I want to go back to your answer to Justice Stevens's question. You you say you you draw no distinction between the the procedural uh, failing as a a bar to raising the issue and as a basis for determining a standard of harmless error review later. Uh, I I don't understand why you, you can maintain there is no distinction, because if they may not consider it as the basis for their their standard of harmless error review, assuming we have such a thing, then what are they supposed to use as their standard? Your answer, I take it, is Chapman. But Chapman, uh, as I understand the statement of federal law, would not apply, uh, of state law, Chapman would not apply in these circumstances. And if you were in a federal court uh, and this were a federal conviction, Chapman wouldn't apply on collateral review. So it seems to me that you've either got to accept the distinction uh, between procedural error as bar to issue, procedural error uh, as basis for standard of review, or you have no way to figure out what the, be- what the, the standard of review should be.
1: Well, we would take the, the CCA at its word that the Almanza standard is appropriate, but if the underlying fact of the adequacy of the trial objection has basically been uh, Accepted by the State Court, we don't believe that on State habeas it could reintroduce the inadequacy of that. I'd like to reserve, if I may, the remainder of my time.
0: Thank you, counsel. Mr. Cruz?
9: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Two postulates govern this case. First, reconciling Jurek and Johnson and Graham on the one hand. And Penry II and Tenard and Smith II, on the other hand, is not an easy task. And State and Federal Courts have struggled for two decades to draw the appropriate lines and to faithfully apply this Court's Penry jurisprudence. Second, the usual default rule in both State and Federal Court is that most constitutional errors are subject to harmless error review. Petitioner suggests that the state habeas- I take it that is not an issue before us. It is an issue that on the reply brief, Petitioner has essentially conceded. In footnote five, Petitioner states that he is not seeking reversal on the basis that Penry error is structural error. But that is the issue of what the Court of Criminal Appeal did below.
3: The Penry error, even if not structural, is not subject to harmless error review. And, and you could say there, there is that distinction is possible because Penry has a built-in harmless error or a harmful error component. But as I understand it, that's not the that, — that issue is not in this case.
9: It is not in this case because of petitioner's concession. But petitioner's yeah. concession has serious consequences. Because the only ground upon which petitioner can prevail in this Court is that the State Court's application of harmless error violated the United States Constitution. And by giving up his structural error argument, he gives up virtually any basis to lay out why that would violate the U.S. Constitution, not simply why it was incorrect, but why it is unconstitutional for the State Court to apply that doctrine.
5: It's a question of, of, of waiver, part of it. I mean, that's, uh, it's well established that, I guess, I mean, if a state waives an adequate state ground by considering the federal issue, the federal courts will go into the federal ground. And they can't later, can they, lay is there any case you found anywhere, I haven't found one, where, say, any federal court considered a state case where the state went into the federal issue, the state had said nothing about a state ground, And then after the Federal Courts decided it, somehow the State got a hold of it again, and they this time said, oh, dear, we forgot. We forgot. In fact, uh, there's a State ground here. And is there any case that you found like that which said that was permissible?
9: Justice Breyer, I do not disagree with you.
5: Okay. There's no such case. And therefore, this would be the first.
9: But that's not what happened here. I do not disagree uh, with you that if the State Court had concluded for petitioner on a State ground to begin with, and after being reversed, revisited that conclusion? No, no, no.
5: I'm saying the State typically decides against the defendant. They decide against the defendant on a Federal issue. It's a perfectly adequate State issue. It's called failure to object. And uh, they don't mention it. I'd be repeating myself. Are you following what my, my? — I'm saying, I, I, is there I, any case you found anywhere which says after that occurred That the state, when it gets a hold of the case again, can say, oh, dear, we forgot. There's also this adequate state ground. Bad luck. I've never seen such a thing. I doubt that you have.
9: Justice Breyer, there is no suggestion.
5: And I say this would be the first.
9: That's not what happened here. And so we are not urging that ground to support what the Court of Criminal Appeals did. But, as the Chief Justice suggested, the Almanza standard, the state harmless error standard, is a two-step inquiry. Inquiry number one, is there error? And under state law, if you conclude no, the analysis ends. So the first time the state court considered this, it concluded there is no constitutional error, and so it never addressed harmless error.
5: I'm making a mistake here. Uh, I thought that the reason they bring in the Almanza standard is, as I put it before, a kind of act of charity. That is, since there was no contemporaneous objection or proper one, you don't get any appeal normally, but we'll let you do it if you can show egregious error. I'm wrong about that.
9: That, that. that is not exactly how the state court and state law does it. What the state law does in our position in this case is that Petitioner failed to preserve his objection because he did not object specifically on the ground. Yes,
8: but Mr. Cruz, is it not true that if he did fail to preserve the objection, then there should have been a procedural bar? to the case going
9: forward. Uh, there is not a procedural bar because the State Court of Criminal Appeals has chosen to forgive failure to preserve for purposes of procedural default and subsequent In other words, mediation. they
8: are saying that the failure to object does not constitute, would, would constitute a procedural bar if we elected to treat it that way. But we've decided not to, but we're nevertheless going to rely on the failure to object to justify a higher standard of review on, on harmless error.
9: That's exactly correct, Justice Stevens. Is there any
8: precedent for that ambivalent use of a potential procedural bar?
9: Let me suggest it's not an ambivalent use, but rather what the Court of Criminal Appeals has held, in the Black case it held that Penry one was so novel that the State Courts would excuse a failure to preserve for purposes of procedural bar. So in this regard, the State Court is more forgiving to defendants than the Federal Courts are.
6: General Cruz, none of this went on in the opinion, and there were four judges of that Court who said there's a procedural bar here. End of case. The majority never explained why they weren't going along with that. I didn't see anything in the majority opinion that said well, never mind that there's a procedural bar here. We're going to deal with the Federal question.
9: Justice Ginsburg, you're right that in Smith 1, the Court of Criminal Appeals, the majority did not explain why there wasn't a procedural bar. But there had been a long line of cases where the CCA had decided, Penry errors, we're not going to bar access to the courthouse. And just last week, in another decision that was decided after briefing in the case, in the Inry Hood case, the Court of Criminal Appeals made clear that, in its judgment, Penry 2, was also so novel that for purposes of successive writs, it would excuse a failure to preserve. The
0: simple question is the procedural objection, as the four judges suggested, could have precluded consideration of the federal claim at all. Correct. And the Court said, we're going to go ahead and consider it. And then when it turns out that they got it wrong and there was error, they had to apply harmless error review. In Texas law, harmless error review turns on the standard whether there was an objection or not. And they went back and said there was no objection. The the contrary assertion assumes that when they let the uh, claim go forward that they were waiving any reliance on objection for any purposes, not consideration on the merits, but also for any eventual later consideration on harmless error pursuant to the established State standard.
8: Mr. Cruz, would you clarify one thing for me? Did the Texas Court of Appeals say, in effect, there is a procedural bar, but we're going to waive it? Or did they just not address the issue?
9: In black... They said exactly what I mean in this say. case in this case they didn't they didn 't say because long standing CCA precedent well, they, you're they, assuming
8: that 's long standing precedent it, it is also at least conceivable that at the time they thought the objection was properly preserved
9: It is conceivable, but I would suggest the more reasonable inference is they followed their long line of precedents that said we 're not going to interpose as the chief justice suggests a total bar to raising these claims, so for procedural default and for successive writs, we're not going to penalize petitioners for failing to make objections. Just because the State Court decides to be more lenient than the Federal Courts in that respect does not mean that they also need to apply the lesser standard. But you're
8: assuming they decided to be more lenient rather than assuming that they may have actually decided and rejected the procedural bar. That's at least possible on this record, is it not?
9: They did not say one way or the other the first time. No, but isn't the
3: implausibility of the argument that you're making uh, something like this? You say the Texas rule is not that failure to object is a procedural bar, but that failure to object determines the standard of harmless error review if, in fact, there is a later appeal. The implausibility, though, I I guess, of the position is that, as I understand it, uh, four members of the Texas Criminal Court of Appeals did not understand that to be the case at all. Four of them said, it is a procedural bar. The four did not understand that there was this rule that you invoked, And when the four said there is a procedural bar, the majority of the Court never came out and said, no, there isn't.
9: The most reasonable explanation for that, Justice Souter, I would suggest, is at the time of Smith III, the Court had not decided Hood, which means it had not concluded that Penry II was also so novel that it would forgive failure to raise it.
3: Isn't the consequence of that, though, that for purposes of this case there was no clear state bar at the time in question and therefore they cannot apply it now maybe they can apply it in cases down the road I'll, i'll assume for the sake of argument that they can but not in your case because the bar was not established at the relevant time in your case
9: that would arguably be the case if on remand the Court of Criminal Appeals had applied procedural default and refused to consider the, ca- the, the claim. But That's not what it okay, did. Okay,
3: but what it is doing uh, is, is, in effect, saying there was a kind of default which is subsumed in what the four dissenting justices said the first time around. And so we're going we're gonna to sort of call
9: it a half-loaf procedural default. But we never said so the first time around. Respectfully, they are altogether separate concepts. A procedural default is a total bar to the Court. I I
3: can understand that they would be separate concepts if there were a rule or if there had been a rule in place at the time he was going through his state habeas that so said. But we don't seem to have such a rule because, as you said, there was disagreement within the Court and Hood had not been decided. Uh, But Black Pardon me.
9: Black had and Almanza had. Black it was being. Help me out. Black. Black is what excused the failure to raise Penry one for novelty, and so it was clearly established state law at the time of this trial. But
3: That goes to Penry one, and, and this is this is an, an, an objection both to Penry one
9: and based on Penry two. But but the Hood so decision, to, but, Hood the Hood decision with respect to Penry two is being forgiving to criminal defendants. It's not a bar. It's forgiving a bar. That does not mean that the Almanza standard, which had been present for, has been present in state law for over 20 years, is suddenly inadequate. But did they cite that case in this, in this opinion, in this case? Uh, They absolutely cited Almanza. Speaking of that
5: case, is there, can you give me any citation, and just give me a citation, and here there may be one. But give me a citation where Texas previously said that a defendant who raised an objection before trial, to the application of the statute to his client. He said it's unconstitutional as applied to my client. Give me one example in Texas law where that was raised and the state appeals court at any any level said, I'm very sorry, you can't really appeal that because you should have said it again during the trial.
9: Respectfully, Justice Breyer, that is not what we are urging, and I'm very glad you asked that question because I'd like to clarify what we are urging in our brief. That is not why we think Smith is not In other words, there's no, is case, not there's
5: no case in Texas law that says what I just said.
9: I don't know if there is or not, but our, you can't our argument is not based on the okay. timing of the objection. So it has nothing to do with when he did or didn't raise it, his objection. And, and so, it was
5: because and, he didn't raise it again in the trial. Th-
9: th- th- that is not the what basis. What is the argument? The argument is that he made a different objection, a substantively different objection, because what he filed was an argument that the Texas death penalty was unconstitutional on its face, across the board, and as applied to him. And he made a conscious strategic choice, which is when the judge presented the charge to to the counsel and said, do you have any objections, do you have any suggestions, is there any way I can change it? He could have done what Penry's counsel did. Penry's counsel twice asked the judge, please instruct the jury on deliberateness that they can consider my mitigating evidence for deliberateness. Penry 1 said that would solve the Penry problem.
4: But in this case, the counsel for the defendant did one other thing, and it said to the judge, you don't have authority under state law to add to these supplemental instructions. And I was going to ask you, he was right about that, wasn't he?
9: J- Justice Kennedy, he was, he was categorically wrong about that. And, and, and that fundamentally... Really? Yes, for two reasons. Number one, because Penry won, which has already been decided, this Court had said the way to correct a Penry error is to give an instruction. And the Court of Criminal Appeals following Penry had already squarely held... The way to correct a Penry error is to give an instruction.
6: What instruction? I haven't seen one.
9: Was the, haven't wasn't seen it the
6: nullification one. instruction?
9: That's what the court of criminal appeals had said. Penry one said a deliberateness instruction or a catch-all instruction. So, but in both cases, both this court and the state court had said judges can give an instruction. And Penry one's counsel. Is made it the,
6: the instruction? I think this is of some importance. My understanding in this case. Is that the judge, as well as counsel, thought that the judge couldn't say, in essence, what became the Texas law because the legislature put it in, which is jury is the two special issues, but you can consider all the mitigating evidence, and it's up to you if you think that mitigating evidence is enough to have a life rather than a death sentence. That I thought the judge couldn't do. I have not seen a pre-legislative change charge in Texas that says what the legislature provided.
9: JUSTICE GINSBURG, that is, in fact, what the judge did here. What the judge could do, clearly under Texas law, is give any reasonable instruction to cure the error. What the judge couldn't do is submit a third special issue. It couldn't ask the jury, check, is there enough mitigating evidence to sentence to death? So it couldn't change the output from the jury it couldn't add a new special issue but it could give any instruction possible to correct the error that was texas law Give instructions but the special issues are set by statute
6: and so the jury what they take into the jury room is something that says these are the two questions that you must answer
9: but they also have a written charge so they get a written charge with the instruction which
6: tells them that the only way that they can give effective mitigating evidence is if they answer one of those questions falsely.
9: But this Court said in both Penry one and Penry II that if the trial judge defined deliberateness appropriately, even under the old special issues, that it, it could solve the problem.
4: But in this case, the judge said, I'm going to give the nullification instruction. And the attorney said, and I think quite properly, he said, that won't work.
9: But what the the attorney didn't say, that won't work because it puts jurors in an ethical quandary, it causes them to violate the oath. What What the attorney said is, you can give no instructions. And the reason for that strategic choice is that Smith's counsel made the judgment, I want it to be impossible for my client to be subject to the death penalty. Had Smith's counsel made the same objection that Penry made, had he read Penry right in front of him and asked, give me a deliberateness instruction, it would have cured the error. But the reason I would suggest that Smith's counsel didn't is that the quantum of mitigating evidence in this case was so slight compared to the previous cases that he made a very conscious strategic choice. I'd rather go all or nothing. I would rather make an argument that there is
6: MS. How can you make that assumption when the kind of um, mitigating evidence that has been considered Possible within these special questions. The, the, in the Graham case, where the reputation of this young man, he was sweet, gentle, kind, God-fearing, and so the, the murder that he committed was an aberration. And youth. Those are the two things that I know that we have recognized fall within that. The evidence in this case is surely not that we're dealing with a sweet and kind person. We're dealing with somebody who has been abused as a child and who has a mental disorder.
9: Respectfully, Justice Ginsburg, the evidence was precisely that it had been sweet and kind. Over 97 percent of the evidence the defense counsel relied on in closing was the 15 character witnesses to show that he was a big, lovable teddy bear and went to church and was sweet and kind, and he had overcome these obstacles, and this was a momentary aber- aberration. That was the central theme of defense's arguments. And, in fact, when the court- When of you court- say 90 percent, you're talking about argument time, aren't you? I- the talk-
3: answer to that is there were several hundred pages of records uh from school and and the testing that went on in school that indicated uh there was something seriously wrong with this guy
9: well and it's interesting the several hundred pages they talk about their three iq tests smith has gotten when he was seven years old he tested at 87 when he was 10 years old he tested at 87 when he was 13 he tested at 78. they and they introduced all three these were the school records there weren't competing experts it's interesting. In closing arguments. All right. Maybe,
3: but, but the, the fact is that we're talking right now uh, about sort of quantum of evidence. Was there something serious there for the jury to consider, which in effect is the basis for all of this argument? And it, it seems to me it's not fairly characterized by saying, well, 90 percent of, of the mitigation case was that he was sweet and loving uh, there, whether, whether, you find it, uh, whether you find it persuasive or not. There was a substantial amount of evidence uh, of, of going to his, his mental capacity and to his abuse.
9: J- Justice Souter, not only was it a very small part of the presentation, but in closing argument, defense counsel explicitly pointed out to the jury that, and let me let me read from defense counsel's closing, I think it speaks well for both sides, the state and the defense, to be quite honest, that we didn't bring you some hired gun, some psychiatrist that gets paid to get up here and say, oh, well, these are all family problems. And that is at 33, uh, volume 33 of the record, page 59. He affirmatively, in Penry, the whole argument was there's IQ problems, there's serious abuse. There's no abuse in this case, Justice Ginsburg. no, No allegation of abuse whatsoever. And he affirmatively said to the jury, look, we're not relying on some psychiatrist saying there are all these family problems. Our story is that this is a good person who led a good life, and this is an aberration.
0: Thank you, Mr. Cruz. Mr. Sherr?
7: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, uh, I represent California and 20 other States who are concerned about the implications of, of petitioners' arguments for their ability to apply their own varied harmless error standards in their own State habeas proceedings and thereby to strike what they believe to be the right balance between the two competing concerns that this Court identified in Calderon, one being the significant social cost of retrial or resentencing, and the other, the desire to ensure that the extraordinary remedy of habeas corpus is available to those whom society has grievously wronged. And with those concerns in mind, I'd like to address three specific points. Uh, The first is the the whole question of whether states have the ability, uh, under our federal Constitution, to choose their own harmless error standards, even when they're addressing federal error. Uh, Petitioner appears to concede as a general matter that states do have that authority, but let me just briefly indicate why that concession is well-founded. Um, first of all, as this court has held in Pennsylvania I versus Finley, this.
8: are you talking about both collateral review
7: and direct review, or just collateral review? I'm just talking about collateral review right now. Um, a- as this court has held in Pennsylvania versus Finley, the states are under no obligation to provide collateral review at all, um, and so it would be extraordinary <laughs> if they take the step of deciding that they will provide such review for th- for this court to say, well, if you're going to do that, you have to apply a federal standard. on on state habeas review rather than the standard that you choose. Um, Secondly, to the extent the states decide to provide habeas review or any other kind of post-conviction review, the authority by which they do that uh, derives from state law, not from the federal constitution or or any other federal law. Uh, And this court obviously does not have general supervisory authority over, over state courts as it does federal courts. Uh, and third, unlike the situation with direct review, this Court could not, as a practical matter, impose a federal standard on state habeas proceedings without being
5: highly intrusive. I mean, if in, in this case, suppose the, the following circumstance. Suppose a federal court has decided in the case of this defendant right. there was an error of federal constitutional law that... Search and seizure or confessions or something. And now we send it back. And let's suppose further the state has no independent state ground. They're not trying to make the argument whether they're not, they're trying to make it here. But there's no independent state ground, no objection to problem, nothing. Now I've read that one standard that could be applied is this structural error standard. A second is a harmless error standard. But I've never seen a case But that's perhaps my ignorance. That's what I want you to show me, where it's definitively established by a federal court anyway that there was a serious federal error. I've never seen a case where this court said, or I can't recall one, that the state applied yet some third kind of standard, such as, well, I know there was a very important error, and I know it was federal and constitutional, but nonetheless, we're not going to give them any remedy unless it's absolutely egregious harm. I've never seen that in the law. Now, can you point to me in the law where that, where, which will correct my lacuna? I, I'm not aware
7: that the Court has expressly addressed that precise question, which I think is — Have you is, ever
5: seen it in a state? Have you ever seen a state which gets a case back from — Yes, where, where, and where should I look on that?
7: Well, our, our, our amicus brief, Your Honor, cites, uh, cites dozens of cases in which, in which states have uh, addressed federal error. No, I'm
5: not talking about that, because obviously they can do what they want, I think, in the state courts, but they might violate federal law if they do it. And now, so what's happened is somebody's going into federal court or this court, and federal court or this court has said... Here's a federal error. Of course you're free to apply harmless error or whatever. You don't have to let the person have a new trial or let him out. But I've never seen an instance I can think of where that having happened, the state then applied yet some third standard, like absolutely egregious horrible harm or not totally wonderful harm or something like that. I've never seen or, that. That's what I'm looking for. Is there such an instance? Or, or plain error, as is applied in the federal cases under Orlando. Right. Yeah, that's possible.
2: Is there some reason, Mr. Shear, why that would be more egregious when the federal constitutional question has been answered by a federal district court than it is when the federal constitutional question has been answered by the state supreme court? Wouldn't it be just as bad when the state supreme court has said the federal constitution has been violated, and then the case goes back to the lower state court? And the lower state court applies some uh, uh, standard for plain error, which is, which is simply different from, uh, from what, is, what is being urged here today. I'm sure that happens all the
7: time. I, I, I'm sure it does. And
2: I don't know why it's any worse, or any worse when you do it to a federal district court's determination of, of what the federal Constitution says than when you do it to the state Supreme Court's determination of what the federal Constitution says.
5: That's right. I guess the reason would be that there is a problem of enforcing federal constitutional standards. I've not heard of a state that says, suppose the jury was chosen in a racially discriminatory way. Suppose there are all kinds of things that went on. The state says, well, we admit, we admit that there is uh, this violation, but uh, we're just not going to apply a harmless error standard. We're going to apply a tough one. I guess that would be the reason. That's why I don't think I've ever seen it.
7: Right, and the the question is whether the state is free in that circumstance to apply a state harmless error standard or, or if it has to be required to apply a federal harmless error standard. And, our, and, our, and, and the fact is that, that, on the ground, the states are routinely applying state harmless error standards in, in those situations. Um, and so it would, it would be a sea change if this Court were to now hold that, you no, know, when, when a, a state Court is reviewing the effect of a federal error, uh, the, the state Court has to apply a federal standard is there rather than a state Is there special change. federal harmless error standard that applies to unpreserved error? I think it's the Olano standard, at least, uh, at well, least that's in the for federal, federal that's in the federal courts, but there right. isn't one that's applicable to the state perhaps, No, is there? No. There well, we've never had the issue before us, have we? Uh, that's not why, why you're here. I mean. that's, that's why I'm here. No. That's right. But and, isn't and, the you know.
8: question a little different? If you have two harmless error standards in a given state, do they have to apply them consistently?
7: Well, the, the, then the question would be, is there, is there some federal law reason why they have to? I mean, they may under state law have to apply In other words,
8: if, for example, in it, it, the, the higher standard only applies to un, unpreserved error and the record clearly establishes and the sta- several state judges confirmed there was no unpreserved error, then would there not be a duty to apply, uh, to apply the, the lower standard?
7: There may be under state law, but it's not clear why that and would raise a federal the, if issue. if the
8: state follows the rule in just one exceptional case before the court, can the federal court say, hey, you're not following your, your regular rule?
7: Well, there, there may be a due process objection to that. But, but, but here the only objection is, — Is there
8: no federal interest
4: in ensuring that there is a full and fair implementation of a federal right? And if the state higher standard is erroneously
2: applied, doesn't that prejudice the federal right? Well, that
7: that may be one reason why we have federal habeas proceedings. Uh, Well, that
2: that reason would would apply equally, however, to determinations of federal rights by state courts. That's correct. And I think everybody understands that state courts do this all the time. And indeed, a good way to do an end run around what what, what the other side uh, in this case seems to want is simply for the state Supreme Court to find a violation of federal law so that it doesn't get to a federal court and then have the state lower court uh, apply whatever uh, uh, harmless error standard it wishes, which would be a crazy system. That's right. So if you're going to adopt this rule, this rule would have to be adopted not only for references back to the state court from a federal decision, but you would surely have to apply it to all state determinations of federal law. And I don't really know what authority we would have to uh, to require uh, lower state courts to do that.
7: Well that, that's ex- that's exactly right and especially in the habeas context it would it would be extremely intrusive and invasive invasive for this court to attempt to do that. It's one thing on direct review of a state criminal conviction to say as a matter of federal constitutional law we think there was an error here and 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 we're going to nullify the conviction, which is what the Constitution give this, gives this Court the power to do. But it's quite another, after the conviction is final and the defendant is already incarcerated, then on a state habeas proceeding for the issue to come, to come back to this Court, um, it, it would be extraordinary for this Court to say, well, you have to apply federal standards or federally dictated procedures in, in that circumstance. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Steiker, you have four minutes remaining.
1: I'd like to return to the record in this case because I think once it's clarified what the nature of the evidence was in this case, it's clear that this Court could find that the error was harmful under any standard, including the egregious harm standard. We had in this case over 200 pages of exhibits documenting a lifelong disability. This evidence was first introduced in the guilt-innocence phase of the trial. It was argued at the the guilt-innocence a closing argument in which trial counsel said this is a 19-year-old ninth grader who has been charged with this crime and argued that that was a basis for considering him less culpable than his college-educated co-defendant. During the punishment phase, it's clear that the single most important witness, the one whose testimony was the most central, most time-consuming, was Alberta Pingle, who brought in all of the school records showing from the time Petitioner was in school. He had been diagnosed as a learning disabled, possibly organic in nature, 78 IQ. And his counsel emphasized this as the central basis for withholding a a death sentence. He said, this man has a 78 IQ, eight points from being mentally retarded, lifelong learning disabilities, possibly organic in nature. And the argument that there was no evidence of abuse in this case is belied by the fact that the evidence showed The petitioner's father chased him with a butcher knife in order to steal the family's car in order to support his crack addict. If that's not evidence of abuse and evidence that could show reduced culpability for this defendant, coupled especially with his impairment, which made him less capable of responding to that role model and avoiding dangerous behavior.
0: What about uh — General, uh, Mr. Cruz's comments that this was a minor point in the counsel's summation before the jury.
1: It is true that this evidence was presented as only one page of his closing argument, but that was because of the problem in this case. As this Court noted in its summary reversal, the prosecutor got up right before defense counsel and said, you promised us on voir dire you would answer the special issues honestly and that if the evidence supported a yes answer to deliberateness and dangerousness, you would give us yes answers. Basically, right before he spoke, the prosecutor gave an anti-nullification instruction which said this evidence isn't relevant to the special issues of deliberateness and dangerousness. In that posture, he was left to argue that the evidence showed he wasn't dangerous, that the evidence showed he didn't act deliberately, and just hope that the jury would be willing to lie on the special is verdict. This, court.
0: Is this argument an assertion that the Texas state court was wrong in its determination of this question of Texas state law?
1: His argument. No, was, this is
0: your argument right now.
1: I'm sorry, I don't. Understand. Is your
0: argument an argument that the Texas state court was wrong on its ruling under Texas state law, harmless error?
1: No, our argument is that when you take out the clearly impermissible federal conclusion. That the jury could give effect to this evidence which was exactly what this court said to the contrary in its summary reversal this court said this evidence couldn't be considered the state court said he has extensive evidence he has powerful evidence powerfully presented dramatically presented but we think unlike the supreme court that a carefully crafted nullification instruction will facilitate the jurors consideration of it so if you take away the impermissible federal conclusion. This court could clearly concede, conclude on the basis of the state court's own characterization of this evidence, which departs tr- tremendously from the respondent's view that this was powerful mitigating evidence. The court of criminal appeals' error was to conclude that this could be taken into account after this court said exactly the opposite.
0: Thank you, Thank counsel. you counsel. The case is submitted.